hon. What you doing with your phone? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. On September 17th, 2009, 24-year-old Mitrice Richardson disappeared without a trace in the woods near Malibu, California, and was never seen alive again. I'm Katherine Townsend, host of the podcast, Helen Gone. We're going to try to find out what really happened to Mitrice Richardson. School of Humans and iHeartRadio present Helen Gone, Season 3. Listen to Helen Gone on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The world of politics has been fertile soil for stand-up comedians and comedy writers for as long as politicians have existed. Some of the funniest late-night talk show monologues and sketches have drawn on the ridiculous and hypocritical behaviors of elected leaders. When comedian Jon Stewart took over hosting duties for Comedy Central's Daily Show in 1999, he elevated political satire and comedy to a level never before seen. By the time he left the show in 2015, research had proven that not only did more Americans under the age of 30 get their daily news from Stewart and other satirical news programs like his than from any other news source, but viewers of such shows tended to be more educated about the facts surrounding current events than viewers of any actual news program. Across the Atlantic in the UK, the hit television series The Mash Report has met with similar success, satirizing the machinations of UK politics and recently the fallout of the UK's Brexit referendum. And now, the host of The MASH Report, comedian Nish Kumar, has stormed the U.S. shores with a new program, Hello America, that offers a refreshing take on the dramas and tragedies going on in America through a British lens. Oftentimes, finding uncanny parallels between the political developments in both the U.K. and the U.S. I'm Clay Aiken. This week, Politicon welcomes U.K. comedian Nish Kumar to discuss those parallels and his new show on Quibi, Hello America. Hello, Nish Kumar. How are you? Good, Clay. How are you? Um, I'm doing well. I got to tell you, honestly, the the producers of this podcast have never been more excited about a guest that we have had on this show <laughs> than they have been about having you on. And I got to tell you, when I when I first when I first they first told me that they wanted to have you on, and they've been wanting to get you to Politicon for years, and they've wanted to have you on the show. I thought, okay, well, let me. And now I'm pretty pumped myself because you're funny. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> and it's this is and, not, it's, and um, it's really. I was just going to say this is not my my ideal is to go in with expectations very low. So uh, if I can do that's if how I can I've survived do life. To... <laughs> well, then listen, listen. In that case. I thought it was horrible. It was just, I have <laughs> nothing but, I've been dreading this episode all week. <laughs> but I mean, Our it, expectations are on the floor. This is when I thrive. <laughs> well, there you go. We're both the same way. How are things, you're in London right now. How are, how is in life deep. in London in the middle of this whole pandemic thing? Or is it locked well, down there? Does it feel it, weird? It's, we're sort of in a, um, uh, I tell you, Clay, it's not quite clear where we are anymore. Uh, our government uh, has not um, uh, clarity is not our government's strong point in terms of communications. Uh, you know, which is sort of not ideal when what they're trying to communicate is the uh, financial budget for the next year. But I would say it is actively a disaster zone when what they're trying to communicate is how to avoid dying of a global pandemic. And uh, at the minute, we're in a stage where we're, so we're not in lockdown. 
um, but we're not fully out of lockdown. So restaurants and bars are open, but with heavy restrictions on how many people can be inside at any one time. Um, and they, they've, they've relaxed some of the kind of social gathering elements of it. But we have been having the odd localised lockdown uh, over the last couple of weeks. And I, I suspect strongly there'll be a couple more of them uh, to come uh, in the next couple of weeks as well. Um, it's also extremely hot here, which... For uh, other people, might not be a problem, but for British people, we cannot we cannot handle the heat. We cannot manage. And you don't it. have air conditioning it, much, do you? Most people have don't have AC not, inside. No, we've got no AC, and all our houses are built to retain <laughs> heat. And as soon as the temperature goes over something in the region of seventy, we all start losing our minds and start consuming vast quantities of lager with no shirts on. So, like, I, I'm not sure how the heat wave is going to tally with uh, our compulsion to do that. Um, so, at the moment, we're like, we're okay. That sounds like that's that's really the special relationship between America and England. Uh, it, the the shirtless drinking. That's where we. Shirtless that's where we drinking. bond probably the most. <laughs> that's is, Thatcher is, and Reagan had done that ballroom dance, both topless drinking beer. <laughs> it would have been more representative of the relationship between our two countries. <laughs> that would have that would have been quite the step in a in the Cold War. Um, quite the would have step. Made it, I've got to be honest with you, that would have probably chilly, made it a little more chilly. But um, <laughs> with them, um, are people listening? Are people following the directions there? Do, do they, is there a sense that people are concerned? Or is it, I mean, here in America, and I'm sure you've paid attention to it some because you've got your show on Quibi, Hello America, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But, um, uh, here in America, it's very political. People tend mm. to be very guarded and very careful and very careful about following guidance if they are supporters of Joe Biden <laughs> and sure. or Democrats. Yeah. And, uh, and unfortunately, a lot of people who are Trump supporters tend to have followed his guidance more and not – or followed his example more, excuse me, and not been really all about the masks. Is it political there also? There's an element of that. There are people who are trying to culture war our response to it. Um, and there's there's definitely an element of, I, I guess you could sort of, if you're trying to roughly create analogies between us, our sort of pro-Trumpers tend to be pro-Brexit conservatives. And, you, you know, that there's elements of the hard right-wing press that is trying to cultivate a culture war around mask wearing and observation of social distancing. However, the thing that complicates matters for them is that Boris Johnson got it. And I think that that is why lots more people are taking it seriously than I think would they'd otherwise be doing. Because Boris Johnson actually took the, I mean, the decisive leadership maneuver to lead by example and contract coronavirus. <laughs> possibly. And he got it, I mean, possibly. and a bad case of it too. He, he he got it. He got it extremely bad. There was a sort of concerning period where he'd obviously got it, and you know, regardless of your political persuasion, your first thought is, "Well, I hope he's okay." And all the information seemed to be that um, you know was coming out. Of the government was that he was fine, and then Dominic Raab, who's our uh, foreign secretary is our secretary of state who was um sort of deputizing for him at the then daily coronavirus briefing said he's absolutely fine and then he was pressed again and he said uh, yeah i mean i haven't spoken to him for about three days but he's absolutely fine <laughs> and at that point everyone was like oh my god we have no prime minister this is a disaster but i think because of that lots of his supporters who i think 
might instinctively have been uh, up for a sort of mask-based culture war haven't been able to go down that route. Um, because you can't claim something's a hoax if your number one guy came down with a severe case of it. Right. Do you have, I mean, you mentioned the, the right wing press. I, I, I get, I get Sky News here in the, in the US. So I'm able to, I'm able to watch that because it's available. And, and I've heard so many people who I know from, from England, friends of mine there who have said, Oh, that's the right wing media. That's the right wing press. And I, and I get into this. I've kind of get, I scratch my head about it because when I've watched Sky News and I kind of am nerdy enough to follow the, the UK elections quite a bit, they don't, you don't have opinion journalists so much on any of your news networks there. And I guess maybe that has something to do with some regulations that are in place in England. But where, where is, where is the right wing or left-wing media propaganda-type stuff coming from there? I mean, is, so, is it coming from the news networks or elsewhere? No, the real heartland of our um, partisan news is in the print media. Um, that's really the... Uh, uh, and I guess, you know, and their uh, websites of those print media. The real, like, where, where, where our version of Fox News exists is in newspapers like uh, the Daily Telegraph, which is a kind of, you know, broadsheet conservative newspaper. And in the one that may be familiar to American audiences, although not necessarily because of the news, is the Daily Mail website. Now, the Daily Mail website, I believe, is one of the most visited news websites because it has quite a prominent showbiz section. Um, right. and that, uh, and that thing I think is engaged with on a global scale. But over here, the Daily Mail really is, um, the home of the sort of, that's where you go for your, you know, for the uncle that you avoid at family gatherings. That's where he gets his news <laughs> from. And that's so that's the, an effective way for, for, for politicians to appeal to folks there. I mean, print is sort of dying here in America. Our local papers don't, are not as a successful, but you're saying it works there. Well, we've still, we've still got web newspapers that have, I mean, our local media doesn't really exist anymore, but our sort of national newspapers are hemorrhaging cash, but I think their websites have quite, still have quite a lot of traffic. Um, and, you know, the most read newspapers here are the Daily Mail and the Sun. And the Sun is a uh, Rupert Murdoch owned tabloid. Um, and, you know, they're both quite, that's really where you go for the spicy opinions. It's, it's how I can best describe <laughs> what's contained within those. I, the Daily Mail is uh, Fox News's uh, angry grandfather. <laughs> well, I mean, you really have seen, correct me, and I, I, I'm going to, so much that I do want to talk to you about, about your show and your and politics in America and how they compare to the U.S. and whatnot. But one thing, as since we're talking about Brexit, let me ask you to stop for just a second, and give listeners just sort of a, a, a Cliff's Notes brief understanding of what Brexit is. We know Brexit means the UK left Europe, but I think for a lot of American listeners, at least, there is a, a, a distance between what really happened and what we think happened. Can you explain what happened in the UK in 2016 there? Yeah, basically in 2016 in the United Kingdom, uh, our entire country uh, basically soiled its pants. And uh, <laughs> instead of acknowledging that we had soiled our pants, we uh, said, no, we did not. Uh, this is what we meant to have happen. And in order to prove how okay we were, started doing some vigorous lunges. 
That's the best, <laughs> like, catch-all. I have visualized that far more than I, I should have. Yeah, that's the best <laughs> catch-all for what I can describe. And now we're, you know, uh, on the surface, uh, from the sort of waist upwards, we're really uh, grinning through it as we continue to lunge. But uh, if you take more than a second to look at us, we are absolutely covered in feces. Um, this sort of long thought of everything is that we were part of a, a political union uh, called the European Union, which is a union of uh, 27 European countries. So it wasn't the whole of Europe. It was a political and economic union uh, that was uh, made up of uh, 27 member states. And we have sort of had a really complicated relationship with that social and political union for a long time. So some of it is actually all covered by a single currency now. Uh, countries like France and Germany gave up their currency and took the euro. We never took the euro. We maintained the British pound. And we always had a sort of fractious relationship with this. As they saw a closer union we sort of always had a slightly contentious uh, um, relationship with it but uh, you know as with the trump vote it's very difficult to what's very interesting about it is that the conversation about the european union should be quite dry because it should just be all about trading relationships um tariff relationships and um sort of movement of people across borders but actually it became uh, something slightly more than that and you know, at least part of the vote, and it's it's hard to describe the vote as one single entity because there were lots of people who would vote for the Labour Party, who were our centre left party, it would be in that roughly analogous to the Democrats. Um, lots of people, some people who vote for that party would also have voted uh, for Brexit because there was a section of the British political left that always saw the European Union as a way of consolidating. Uh, neoliberal economic policies. Um, and then there was a section of British society that always felt that the European Union was an imposition on British sovereignty. Um, and then there was another group of people who uh, were kind of riled up by years and years of anti-immigration sentiment. Because the one thing that being in the European Union did mean is that we had... Um, you know, it allowed for the free movement of people across the EU. And so for the last kind of 20 years, I mean, really almost my entire adult life, immigration from the European Union has been blamed for absolutely everything. And I mean, if I was to give my version of events, I would say that that was all of that was uh, pumped full of steroids by the 2008 financial crisis. And obviously, immediately after a financial crisis, the you you know the populace is always more susceptible to anti-immigration ideas because it's a very convenient scapegoat, and I would say that that really is how we ended up voting Brexit. That's a significant factor in uh, in the Brexit vote. Um, and yes, yeah, so we're now in a position where we voted to leave in 2016. And basically what happened quite quickly after that is it became clear that the people who wanted Brexit di had not had a conversation about what it would involve. And, you know, we pretty quickly did something called triggering Article 50, which is the official mechanism that allows us to leave without doing any of the due diligence. And so we set ourselves a deadline, which was supposed to be 
two years, but obviously has just gone, keeps getting kicked further and further down the road. And now at the end of this year, we officially leave the European Union. So that'll be some uh, four and a half years pretty much after the vote happened. Um, And if we can't agree uh, a covering deal that gives us a trading relationship with Europe, we will leave on a no deal, which means we would default to WTO tariffs and all reasonable economic projections suggest that that will create a an absolute disaster of a recession. But the joke's on them. Because we handled uh, COVID so poorly, uh, as of today, we've just found out we are in the worst recession uh, since records began. <laughs> so just so, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> no, so it doesn't matter. We, you know what? We may as well just, uh, you know, start smashing things up in the street and, uh, you know, hand over the uh, turn the Houses of Parliament into uh, an enormous strip club. Is there a is there a there was hype. There was a lot of concern because there have been a few benchmarks in this. There was the mm-hmm. Article 50 triggering. Mm-hmm. Then there was a a, a period in which some sort of preliminary deal had to be made, um, a, a determination as to whether or not Parliament would accept the deal that Theresa May tried to make, and they didn't, and then accept the deal that Boris Johnson tried to make. Um, and now there's... Uh, what ha- Something happened in January of this year, correct? You actually left some part of the union, yeah, but not so officially. We, Explain that. We basically... Uh, we what, what we then needed to do after triggering Article 50 was set up a withdrawal agreement, which is pretty much just the divorce bill. It doesn't actually cover a future trading relationship. It just settles our tab uh, that we owe for being part of the European Union. And Theresa May, who became prime minister, because David Cameron was prime minister, then he after Brexit, he campaigned for Remain, so he felt like he had to, he had to leave. She took over, and she sort of... It, it became quite... Well, she was a Remain campaigner, and then she switched to kind of being quite a hard lever. And she was never really able to marshal the sort of hard right of the Tory party. Um, and she then tried to do this withdrawal bill that they that everyone hated. Like, she managed to do something. She really managed to unify a divided country in that everyone thought that it was absolutely a useless piece of nonsense. But so then she kept bringing it back, and I assume she changed the font every time. I think she came back with one version that was like, this is in Helvetica, and everyone was like, we don't care. The next version she brought back made every third word italicized. I think, and everyone was just like, no, this is still a problem. Um, and eventually she uh, she came to a point where she felt like she'd run the end of the road and had to step down. Boris Johnson took over, um, and he, you know, He's British Trump in a sense that he's like Trump is the incarnation of the worst elements of your society. Boris Johnson is the incarnation of the worst elements of our society. Um, and he sort of took over, couldn't get the deal through Parliament because he uh, they had a, quite a thin majority. So then called an election on the basis that he had, and this is a direct quote of a phrase, an oven-ready Brexit deal, uh, and he was ready for it to go. And then they, in January, they passed the withdrawal bill, which settled our divorce bill from the EU. And then the idea was that over the course of the next 12 months, which is what happens after you pass the withdrawal bill, you've got 12 months to rebuild your uh, uh, trading relationship. And uh, it turns out that Boris Johnson's uh, oven-ready uh, uh, Brexit deal uh, was actually uh, it wasn't a Brexit deal at all. He put some sushi in an oven, and so what we're now left with <laughs> is a bunch of uh, fish and rice that no one knows quite what to do with. Um, and so, at, at, as things stand, we're still heading for uh, we're still heading for an no deal. 
So let me ask, as I listen to all of this, I'm, I'm sitting here trying to draw some parallels to the, to the U.S. and the situation here. And I think a lot of people sort of speculated back in 2016 after Brexit happened. Um, you know, I think a lot of people, correct me if I'm wrong, in the U.K. were surprised by uh, the results of the Brexit vote, mm-hmm. did not expect that, Rem- that um, Remain would lose. Uh, mm-hmm. Certainly... Four, five, six months later here in the U.S., we found ourselves a little bit with our pants down because we did not, certainly Hillary Clinton did not expect that uh, Donald Trump would win. And it's sort of that same sentiment, the same population demographic of people who voted for Brexit, who had been, to use maybe their words, Nigel Farage's words, fed up with the status quo and the way that relationship Mm, had been going. That same demographic here in the U.S. was having the same frustrations. They were upset about immigration. They were upset about some of these more identity politics type um, issues. And they Mm -hmm. sort of rose up and put Trump into office. And then I I think as you're talking about Theresa May and David Cameron, I think about something that I've said to, to my fellow Democrats a few times. Is there a time ever, now that you've got Boris Johnson in office, I ask Americans now that Donald Trump is in office, do you ever look back and say, man, maybe maybe we should not have been so pissed off at David Cameron and Theresa May? Do you think that it's possible that conservatives, Tories in, uh, in the UK felt like, okay, well, Theresa May was actually a Remainer and, and the Labour Party hated her. The next place we can go is to a level 11. You know, we were at a 10 when yeah, Theresa yeah. May was there and, and Boris Johnson is an 11. Do you think that that had any, any, played any role in bringing him to power and letting him, putting him in a position to win um, the leadership of the, of the Tory party? I mean, I think with Johnson, he's a sort of interesting figure because he, he has, he was a journalist who then uh, became a politician and but he the sort of overlap i think between him and trump is that they were both in to some extent facilitated by um the entertainment industry in the same way that trump was and but he was always seen with some suspicious suspicion by the right of the conservative party and so by coming out in favor of brexit he kind of quietened his doubters in the Conservative Party, um, because you know he was seen as being in favour of Brexit. I mean, if you but you keep on saying things that sound just like Trump, he was a Democrat for years yeah. before he oh, became a Republican. There, so it's all <laughs> there's total overlap for sure between uh, between the two of them. Um, and yeah, there was there's definitely an element of that. And I think you know it, he sort of emerged as the only viable candidate because the rest of the kind of pro-Brexit MPs didn't really have the same name recognition as him. And the ones that did had name recognition for being lunatics. <laughs> and so the, it, was a, it was a sort of, it, it was a happy thing where he was like, he, he was, you know, he was the most famous politician in the country um, and he was in favour of Brexit. And so they, they essentially he nearly became prime minister when Theresa May became prime minister, but he, there was a sort of shenanigans between him and another pro-Brexit MP called Michael Gove, um, where they ended up sort of essentially reservoir dogsing each other out of the contest. And Theresa May 
was the only one left standing. <laughs> do you think that part of the do you think that part of the Labour Party's problem had something to do with the leader that they had chosen for themselves through all of this? Well, he was uh, Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn. Was certainly, yeah, a sort of a divisive figure. It became a divisive figure in Britain, and you know some of that is because um, essentially, if you're anything to the left of Margaret Thatcher, the tabloid press will essentially paint you like you're Che Guevara. You know, I mean, I, I was I was so fascinated watching the coverage of Kamala Harris today on Fox News and seeing. You know, an ex-prosecutor described as a kind of somebody who's basically going to legalise mass orgies in Target. And in fact, not even legalise them, make them mandatory. Those are, al- those are already legal in certain states of the South. So, um, <laughs> actually required required for entry, I believe, in South Carolina. Um, the, the reason I asked about Jeremy Corbyn is because I think that there was certainly a, a push here in the U.S., um, from the left of the Democrat Party to nominate somebody like a Bernie Sanders. And mm-hmm. there was also a push from moderates in the Democrat Party to say, if we want to beat Donald Trump or if, if Democrats want to beat Donald Trump, then we need, to, we need to look for someone who can appeal to a middle ground. Do you think Keir Starmer, who, is, who took over for Jeremy Corbyn, who took that spot, do you think he falls in the more moderate uh, area of the party, or do you think that he is is still a pretty progressive liberal leader for Labour? Well, I think Starmer falls from the, uh, the more moderate end of the party. I mean, again, you're sort of looking at it. Uh, the, the, the problem that Starmer is going to have is keeping the left of the party happy. And I think what's interesting is that Biden was obviously, you know, of all of the candidates, arguably the least popular with the left of the Democrats. And I think one of the smartest moves that they've made is to adopt a policy platform that I think is designed to, in many ways, keep the left of the party happy. And I think it's going to be such a fascinating balancing act. It's going to be a fascinating balancing act for Keir Starmer, but because of the fact that we had an election in December, he's got uh, at least uh, another three and a half, four years to work out how to make that balance work. Um, whereas the fascinating thing for Biden is going to be balancing a progressive policy platform that excites and animates voters from the left of the party, who I think there's probably a real, very real danger of people staying home and sitting the election out again. And and also fending off that accusation from the right of Trump that he's essentially going to be, I mean, that Biden is basically going to be weekend at Bernie's by you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Karl Marx. After you listen to today's podcast, here's one to add to your playlist. I'm Christian O'Connell, and I've had this thought for a while. What if you took the world's funniest and most interesting people and asked them to share the stories behind their three most treasured items? When you said the idea, I thought, that's a really good idea. No doubt about it, the guitar. I think I know the the same chords now as I did when I was 14. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) From iHeartRadio, this is The Stuff of Legends. Add it to your playlist for free. Just search for Stuff of Legends in your podcast app. I knew they were going to kill him. Please say FBI. This is Fight Night, a new podcast from iHeartRadio. This is the story about two guys from opposite sides of the street. A hustler blamed for robbing the most dangerous gangsters in the country 
this is like issued a, a death warrant for me for something that I don't even know anything about. And the cop who tried to save his life. They thought he had robbed a deadliest man in this country. Guys who would not hesitate to blow your head off. In 1970, Muhammad Ali triumphantly returned to the ring. At the hustler's party that followed, gangsters from around the country were robbed of a million dollars. This story from Atlanta, Georgia, has been reported for 50 years. But now, for the first time, you're going to hear what really happened from the people who lived it. Listen and follow Fight Night on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. <laughs> right. Do you? So let's talk about your show on Quibi because it's it's kind of exciting to me because I have long seen, as we've been talking about here, so many warning signs coming from the UK. All yeah. these parallels we're talking about, all of the the, the similarities between uh, the way Democrats sort of attacked the John McCain's and the Mitt Romney's and then were stuck with the Donald Trump's to compete against, mm. the way that the Democrats in the U.S. Uh, con- considered someone who was more progressive and settled on someone who was more moderate uh, in mm. the same way that, I mean, that's so many parallels. And so I... I'm, it's very fascinating for me to be able to to listen to your take on U.S. politics, and that's what you're doing in your show uh, for Quibi. Hello, America. Um, tell me, tell me how that tell me how that works, and why why if you see the same parallels, and what you find fascinating about American politics that made you want to do uh, a, a show like this for America. American audience. Well, uh, I mean, look, there's, uh, you know, in Britain, we're always enthralled to the States. You know, there's, there's no doubt about it. We try and pretend that we, we try and affect a manner that suggests that we're like, we feel some sort of superiority to you. But the truth is like, we grow up absolutely fascinated by American culture and American, the American political system as well. And, you know, even in the way that we depict our various leaderships in popular culture, it just means that, you know, I've watched all of the West Wing when I was a kid. And, you know, some of my favorite comedy was the stuff John Stewart did on the daily show. And, um, so there's, there's just always been a kind of residual fascination for me with the American political system because there's so much, you know, we've always had so much in common and yet so, so much, such sort of viscerally different politics in so many ways. I mean, you know, we, for all of our sort of slide to the right in the last 10 years, for example, on the issue of healthcare, the one thing you cannot do in this country is criticize the National Health Service, which is our, you know, a version of what you would call socialized medicine. And so there's always these kind of fascinating touch points and convergences and divergences. But in terms of the, this specific show, uh, after 2016, I sort of couldn't believe that the early warnings from us were not heeded in the States. You know, I, I'm just, it's, it's so fascinated by this sort of Thelma and Louise style collapse. Like we put our <laughs> hand out and you took our hand and then we drove off the cliff together. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it was like, you know, it, it was, you know, it was, it was an extraordinary act of commitment to the special relationship. If I may frame it in that more positive light. Um, but so I think the idea has always been really interesting to me. And also, you know, when I was sort of, 1617 in the kind of turn of the century i was watching a lot of british people talk about america and there was a very you know it was the era of george bush and you know it was a very sort of 
lazy thing to do to write comedy about politics that was just like, well, America is, you know, these guys are all really stupid. And I think one of the things that we wanted to do with this show, because it's really born out of the events of 2016, is kind of definitely look at the ways in which our political systems diverge, but also, I don't want to say celebrate our similarities. (laughs) Right, (laughs) well... (laughs) <laughs> I don't think there's there's many things about the things that we've been doing similarly that should there's be There's so much feces, as you were saying. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, it's a it's a fecal cyclone, Clay. Let me tell you something. Oh, it's, it's swirling vortex of human waste product. But at least I think express some solidarity with the sections of American society that can't believe what's happened to their country. Because there's definitely a lot of people here that can't believe what's happened to to our country and sort of remind you guys that you're not alone in this and remind ourselves that we're not alone in this. It's, it's really about an expression of solidarity with between the people in both our countries that can't fathom how badly things are going. And I mean, that you was, you know, this... Sorry, you go, sorry. No, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, all of this was, you know, this is sort of long-term development out of Brexit and Trump, but I don't think any of us could have foreseen that we would be back here in the same boat in as devastating a way as we have been in the same boat in terms of the absolute ineptitude of our countries, of our government's response to COVID-19. I mean, having having leaders who... Uh a good chunk of both countries believe. I mean, we have we have to concede that there are still nearly fifty percent or forty five percent of the U.S. who does support Donald Trump and and mm. enthusiastically. But but there's a big chunk and a very vocal chunk here in America that doesn't. Um, does that make it easier for you as a comic uh, to have something to? I mean, Fox News ratings tend to go up higher when there is a Democrat in office. MSNBC's yeah. ratings have gone up a lot more here in the U.S. while Trump has been in office. Does it make it easier to be a comic when there is uh, when there are politicians like Boris Johnson or Donald Trump who you are able to make fun of? Is, is it in a way a little bit of a gift to your, at least the career part? The only thing that I would say is a gift about both these people, uh, it's not really about them, to be honest, it's more what's happened in the last four or five years, is that you don't have to, when you're doing comedy about politics, you know, if even when I was doing it sort of six, seven, eight years ago, you'd sort of have to explain who everyone was. And you'd also have to convince, and I'm talking about really doing comedy in comedy clubs, but you'd sort of have to convince a group of people that were out on a Friday night looking for a laugh and a good time why they should listen to you talk about politics and then do the jokes off of it, off the back of it. And now, for sure, even when you do comedy on a Friday, Saturday night, you, the audience is much more engaged and is much more aware of who you're talking about and understands the stakes much more. There's definitely a higher engagement with politics that I can, and this, that's just evidence that I'm collecting sort of anecdotally from doing comedy. Do you have to worry but when I, you go into a, when you go into a, a comedy club and walk out on stage, do you ever have to worry about the fact that, you know, maybe, maybe the audience is more Tory tonight than oh, I want it to be? <laughs> uh, I, um, a man unplugged my microphone. 
was a man was so uh, incensed by my comments about Brexit. This would pr- probably be in November 2017. A man was so incensed that he uh, unplugged my microphone. Well, he called me the C word, which I, I understand is a more, I think it's pro- possibly a worse word culturally in America than it is here, but it's still the worst word here. Um, and But he, he said, you, sir, are a, that word. And I just think <laughs> if you use that word, you have invalidated prior use of the word sir. Like, why have you bothered <laughs> opening with formality? And then <laughs> he, one of his friends found the thing in the tech booth and unplugged my microphone. I got to say, that is still a much more dignified British way to protest than what might have been done here. Because usually I yeah, think in well, the US, something would be thrown at you. At least they just unplug the microphone. I mean, <laughs> well, that's... To be fair, that's also happened to me. <laughs> okay, well, there you go. <laughs> at, the back, at the back end of last year, I was doing a kind of charity fundraiser uh, with quite a sort of well-heeled uh, right-wing crowd, um, and uh, a guy threw a bread roll at me. Um, and, I, I, you know, <laughs> again, it's, it's hard to not make out that, that we are a fake country when even our riots sort of involve fancy bread snacks. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was then, it then, it then made all the papers the next day. It was because I think, you know, at the time I thought, well, this is quite funny. And then for the next sort of 24 hours, it was, uh, you know, the, I, I, I basically tallied all of it. There were over 10,000 words written across about five major British news publications about me having had a bread roll thrown at me. And, well, listen, uh, no press is, is bad press. <laughs> it's, it turns out some press is bad press. But um, it was, uh, <laughs> it, yeah, so that it, so there are times where it goes badly. And, you know, that's sort of the risk you take when you, I, I don't, um, this is going to sound slightly weird. I don't have negative feelings towards people who boo or throw things <laughs> I well, sort of you, have to, you have to learn to, to get yeah, used to it at some point. I mean, you know, when, you, you, when you choose to be political, don't you just... I mean, you, I'm assuming you don't change 100%. your act considering your, based no. on your audience, the things that you no, say or no. what you, how you feel. No, because, you know, I'm a, a big believer in free expression. And, um, you know, I think throwing things maybe crosses a line because I don't think you should, you know, physically threaten people, even if it is yeast-based. But, you know, I'm trying to give up bread. <laughs> That's as much of a threat to me as anything else. But um, <laughs> it, I, I think booing and stuff is kind of, I, I think you, you know, that's the risk that you take if you talk about contentious subject matter like politics at the moment. And it is such a febrile partisan time that you do run the risk of doing that. And I don't really have that many negative feelings about, about people. But just to answer your previous question in terms of like, is it easier to do, I think it's easier to do comedy about politics because people seem more engaged, certainly in this country. I think in some ways it is harder to do comedy about, I mean, look at Veep for example. So we, uh, Veep is, right. it's not really a remake. It's a kind of American evolution of a British show called The the Thick of It, which here was about political spin doctors. And obviously there is about the vice president. And you kind of look at the concept of Veep was what happens if you have a foul-mouthed, uh, ambitious, w- without any sense of political responsibility group of people at the apex of American political power. 
Now, the problem is, how could you possibly do a post-Trump thing? <laughs> well, I will say this. Even pre-Trump, when I ran for Congress in 2014, uh, House of Cards was really popular here in the yeah, U.S. Of course. Veep yeah, was really yeah, popular. Yeah. I, I had to stop watching Veep because yeah. it... <laughs> was so accurate. <laughs> it made me uncomfortable. <laughs> it was so authentic to what my experience running for Congress was like. House of Cards, on the other hand, and West Wing are so unrealistic <laughs> yeah, <of course. laughs> nowadays yeah, yeah, yeah. that I don't find them to be, they don't, they don't concern or bother me anymore. <laughs> Veep is about the closest to authentic that I think we've gotten in America on TV in, in ever. <laughs> Do you think that entertainment has the same power to change people's minds as it used to. I mean, I I think about growing up and sitcoms here in the U.S. that I watched when I was growing up, and they'd have a very special episode where yeah, Arnold's sure. dad on, on different strokes was an alcoholic, and you would learn about, all, you know, shows yeah. had, had the power to change people's minds and expose them to different points of view in, in certain ways in the 80s, the 90s. Do you think that entertainment still has the power to do that? Or do you think that entertainment tends to speak to its own demo? I, th I feel like more and more now it speaks to its own demo. And I actually don't think, I don't necessarily think that that's a political thing. I think that's more to do with how we consume entertainment. You know, in the sort of 80s and 90s, you know, you had shows like, uh, you know, the, the kind of special episode sitcoms. You know, things like uh, Different Strokes or uh, All in the Family or, or um, you know, MASH or any of these kind of enormous cultural juggernauts. The amount, the ratings that they were pulling in, the kind of penetration and cultural impact that they had. But now there's just more, there's sort of lots of different media outlets. And so I think things have just naturally splintered off. So I do think it's hard to get something that really like that really crosses cultural boundaries just because of the nature of the way that we uh, like consume media but i do think that there are occasions where something can have a kind of something can really i, I think like i think it's sort of uh, you know when when kind of i think when someone like john boyega makes a, a massive statement you know goes to a black lives matter protest and speaks out about it. I think that still has a kind of big impact because you know he's in Star Wars and everybody loves Star Wars. And so I do think there are these kind of little flashpoints. I think when Beyonce makes a kind of explicitly political statement, as she has done on several occasions in the last few years, it does resonate because it sort of does cross a lot of cultural boundaries. Um, but I think it's harder and harder to do, but I definitely think that's more to do with the way that we consume media. When you're writing your material, do you hope to be able to reach people or change people's minds, or that's not a goal for you? You definitely you wanna, I mean, hope. You, you definitely, you know, you sort of, you do want to, you do always want to put an argument or a perspective forward that you feel if somebody who disagreed with you uh, watched it. They would, or you want to do stuff that's funny enough that even if someone doesn't necessarily agree with it, they can still uh, they can still get a laugh out of it. And so you do try and keep that in mind where possible. Um, but we are also aware that it, just by virtue of the type of show that it is, we're probably going to be playing to quite a sort of uh, limited, like a sort of narrow demographic. 
Um, but you do try where possible, you know, to try and at least put over, you know, you, we're always very conscious of like, you know, we don't make stuff up. We fact check stuff and we try and make sure that when we're making an argument, it's substantiated. Um, and we try and make it as funny as we can. And, you know, with the sort of hope that if somebody who fundamentally disagrees with what we're doing watches it, they at least get a laugh out of it. But we're also aware of, you know, it's a show making comments about American politics hosted by a British guy. And so by virtue of that, you do realize there's probably going to be a few people that do not engage with it at, at all. I want to move to our, we do a, a quick fire round where we take questions from our audience. They can send them in um, on Twitter or Instagram at Politicon or email them to us at podcasts at Politicon.com. Um, we have a few that are kind of, one specifically that's kind of related to what we're talking about. Um, uh, Cynthia from Boston specifically wanted to ask you, Nish, um, has satire become irrelevant? Um, I don't know. I don't think it's become irrelevant insofar as, I mean, I guess if I thought that, I would have to stop. <laughs> so I guess I'm like professionally obliged to take a, a, a position against this. I think that, um, I, listen, I think that um, for me, the sort of purpose of, why we do comedy about politics because you know sometimes i do wake up and think you know when you're like trying to write jokes and you're looking at worldometer with the death counter and you're trying to like make some comedy out of it you do think jesus why don't we just write some nice funny jokes about uh, the differences between men and women why don't we just write some like you know why are we doing this but i think when i was a kid it, the political comedy that I really loved had a way of making me, it didn't necessarily change my mind. It might have opened my mind up to new ideas. It might have helped me learn how to express something uh, in, a, uh, in, an, in a pithier way. But the main thing it did was make me feel better uh, about scary subjects by making them feel ridiculous. And for me, that's the purpose, the continued purpose of, of satire. And that's why I'm, you know, I'm still, I'm such a fan of John Oliver and such a fan of um, The Daily Show. And, uh, you know, that's why I still go back to, you know, Chris Rock stand-up specials, uh, because I, for me, they had a way of taking something, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, the rise of the far right, whether it's racism, whether it's the prospect of economic collapse, they had a way of taking those scary subjects and making them feel ridiculous. And so make made me feel better um, for the bit of time that I was watching whatever it was. And when people, <laughs> and when people feel like they're not in control of a situation like that, certainly uh, you have a few choices, but one of them is to, to stress out and get an ulcer and have yeah. incredibly life altering anxiety and another one is to laugh at yeah and that's what you know yeah and totally and you know and the, the, the great thing about comedy that i've always felt is that you can watch comedy that totally takes you out of you know i can't be the only person over the last few months that has like rewatched the whole of the office you know because like when <laughs> things are scary i want steve carell to be doing something goofy yeah, and and feel comforted. I want to see Jim and Pam 
uh, you know, make flirty eyes across an office with each other and know that it all ends up fine. And I feel reassured in that way. But I also, you know, like to watch, you know, comedy about the news. Uh, it, that's the nice thing about comedy is that it can take something that's very specific and scary and make it feel less scary, or it can completely take you out of your reality. And that the, it, the both of those things are s- essential and why I still love being a comedian and why I'm still such a fan of, uh, of comedy. Well, speaking of uh, ridiculous things um, that are somewhat funny, Luna from Twitter uh, asks... Do you think Kanye's entry into the campaign will hurt Vice President Biden as he's openly admitted that it's the reason he's running? I, I, the thing is, I am, all I want is for somebody to just get Kanye into some therapy. And I, 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 I'm not even saying that flippantly. I, I, I am really worried for it. I am a, right. I'm an unapologetic, massive fan of Kanye West. I'm concerned that he is not well. And I'm concerned that there is no one around him that seems to be intervening on his behalf. I don't think you're, I, I and I'm making a judgment call of the guy. I don't know him. I don't think Elon Musk should be anyone's support network. I just think <laughs> that that is not a good guy to have oh don't worry i'll be fine my best buddy elon is going to look after me when he's not trying to blast off into space um so i i i hope that do you think kanye will have an effect do you think uh, he will have an effect in the states where he does get ballot access do you think that people will vote for him i i I don't think he'll do enough to split the vote My, my instinct is that he he won't do enough to split the vote because i think you know he a he's not gonna have He's not going to be able, I think, to be on the ballot in all of the states. And I think there is too much of a sense of baggage with with Kanye. Um, and I think if he's like, if he's specifically trying to split maybe the black vote, I think that is the area where he's going to fail. Because the the certainly in 2016, you know, if you look at the sort of demographics, the black vote, particularly the black female vote, uh, was so overwhelming for the Democrats. And I can't see anything that's happened in the last four years is going to make those people change their mind about voting for the Democrats. I do have a dinner bet with one of our producers that says that if, uh, where he, he's concerned about it, and I told him that if, he, if, if Kanye gets more than 1% in any of the states he's on the ballot on, I'll owe, I'll owe him dinner. Um, I kind of feel, <laughs> feel the same, same way as you do. I don't know that he's going to be able to, he's not this, I don't believe he'll necessarily be able to convince people to vote against uh, Biden. I mean, if you're going to vote for Kanye West, he's already determined that he's, and, and settled on the fact that he's probably not going to even be on an, the ballot in enough states to win the presidency, yeah. even if he won in every state he was on the ballot in. So uh, you might as well vote for Trump if you're going to vote for Kanye, uh, yeah. I think is is probably the, the tack that a lot of people who are showing over to vote have. Mona from Chicago asks, are Britain and America still a force for good in the world? Uh, I think it would be hard to make that case. At the minute, um, uh, but I would hope that in time we would be able to be a, a force for good um, again. Do you I mean, mean that I, in the not, sense that that it's not setting the example that you would hope those the two countries are not setting the example? Well, it's you would just hope, sort of providing. Or? You don't want 
you don't want to be a country that's held up by the far right in other countries as an example of how you know they can kind of take power and that's the thing that i that's the thing that concerns me you know it, it concerns me that these kind of you know we're such sort of i mean i like our power maybe is increasingly becoming you know our actual geopolitical influence i think see is you know is on the wane um and certainly you know in terms of like the coming powers of the, the century being china and india and you know certainly while putin is in charge russia as well uh, i think maybe geopolitically our powers might be on the wane but we have a huge amount of and this is such a woolly term by definition but i think we have so much like soft cultural power still that i think um i worry that we are uh, you know i because of the you know the potency of the culture that we produce i worry that we are that america particularly is sort of setting a bad cultural agenda and certainly my concern is in in europe what happened with brexit and again you know you you always take great pains to say obviously not everyone voted uh brexit was a racist you know obviously not everyone who voted brexit is but the the very fact of brexit and the way it was agitated for and the way it was achieved feels like it's definitely given a shot in the arm to hard right-wing parties in europe um because you know this this was perceived as being a movement that was born out of the far right, regardless of the intricacies that we might be able to observe because we're actually in the country. The way that it was seen in the world was that this was a, a huge win for Nigel Farage, not really for Boris Johnson. You know, th- this was seen as a huge win for Farage. And, you know, Farage uh, has, you know, I mean, Farage was, I believe, and I don't know how this is not true, in violation of any number of uh, um, COVID regulations, but he flew to Trump's rally uh, about a, a month ago. And, you know, so they, they, uh, my concern is that we are sort of, both of our countries are setting a bad example and giving hope and inspiration to all the worst people. Well, I mean, at the same time, I think we have to concede, and you've done that a little bit already too, that there are a lot of, there are at least close to half of the people in the US and, totally. and half of people in, in the UK who who yeah, think that totally. we're sort of we're sort of UK's on the right track with with Boris Johnson that America is that Trump despite all of his flaws is doing a good job and and as we talked about a little bit too all those people tend to be siloed into their yeah. Fox News viewing bubble or their yeah. Daily Mail reading bubble. So if if we're continuing to silo ourselves politically, and then also as we're consuming our entertainment, you know, watching Hello America or watching The Daily Show or watching Colbert or or John Oliver or whatever, I guess there are some conservative comics too. Um, <laughs> If we're continuing to silo and only getting those messages that we're seeking out, the the opinions that we agree with already, the question that we try to answer is, Nish Kumar, how the heck are we going to get along? Is there hope for us to actually come together and be able to communicate? There's always hope, you know, but I think that it's, um, it's the challenge that faces the political leaders of the 21st century and that challenge is how do you 
get a message that cuts through. I, I, you know, ultimately, entertainment is great, but we aren't the change makers. All we can do is, um, you know, is provide the entertainment to the people that show up to see us. It's the responsibility of political leaders to learn how to cut through the increasingly fractured uh, way in which people get their information and um, and animate people and shift minds and shift ideas. It is incumbent on political leaders to change the landscape. Um, and that's the challenge, I think, that faces the kind of, you know, coming generations of, uh, of leaderships. Um, because, and also it's a challenge for... Uh, you know, and again, I'm talking specifically to the centre left and the left. It's a challenge to understand how to make it clear that actually, you know, there's m- more people voted for Hillary Clinton than Donald Trump. You know, Trump won effectively on a technicality. Similarly, in our last general election, more people voted for progressive. Uh, left or centre-left parties, and also more people voted for parties that favoured a second Brexit referendum. But one of the things that Conservatives have been able to do is um, e- exploit the arcane nature of both of our electoral systems. I mean, we have the first-past-the-post system, you have the the electoral college, and both of them are sort of semi-outdated pieces of democratic equipment. And it is going to be about in a Biden presidency, examining how that works. You know, the Electoral College is is a hangover of a civil post-Civil War attempt to appease segregationist states in the South. Like, our first-past-the-post system is an electoral system that came from a time where, like, three people were allowed to vote because they owned the most land. You know, it's there's, there's lots of... There's sort of specific challenges facing, and it's about doing the boring grunt work when you're in power, you know? But if you change the electoral system in the UK or in the in the US, and yes, not only did Hillary Clinton win more votes, but we that sh- it's not the first election um, <laughs> in, in my lifetime where that's been the case. Yeah, Al Gore course. won yeah. more votes God, as yeah, well. So, yeah. so there's certainly an argument that it, there's certainly an argument that it does not favor Democrats at the very least. But if you change that system and you move to a popular vote in the US or you move to another sort of ranked choice voting in the UK, would that not just satisfy one particular side. I mean, the the Electoral College, we have not seen in the U.S. an opportunity where Republicans were were finding themselves on the losing end of the Electoral College system. So if we switched it to a popular vote, it would make the argument for, it would make the argument that Democrats wanted, that yes, we should, but it would just reverse the anger and put it on to conservatives who say this is not how we do it so so is that a way to really get people to under to get along and and work together or is that just switching the weight to the other side of the scale that's definitely not a way to encourage people to um that's definitely but i think that that that's part and parcel of trying to make the machinery of you know executing democracy more democratic like actually democratic and more uh, equitable and fair to the countries that you're trying to impose on i mean in terms of healing the rifts i think that um i think we need to somehow we need to work out a way of 
re-establishing core principles. And some of those core principles have to include women and minorities should have the same rights as everybody else. You know, and I think somehow we need to rebuild maybe not even rebuild because maybe that sense has never existed in the first place but we need to get a sense get some basic like basic democratic essentials basic core principles of a free and fair democratic country that transcend partisan politics and i think the only way that that is going to happen is if people on the right who don't consider themselves to be racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic, misogynist, any of that, it's up to them to step back and say, we will no longer tolerate a system in which people's basic rights are a partisan issue. And it's finding a way and it's finding a channel of communication that allows us to have those conversations. Because ultimately, we should be disagreeing over the size of the federal government. We should be disagreeing over, you know, whether the state is very interventionist in the way the economy is run, or whether the state is not very... Inter- you know, we should be having these kind of idealised Aaron Sorkin Westering episodes of conversations because there mm-hmm. are simply areas of political divergence that uh, can only be... Ba- that are just totally based on how you see the role of government and the role of the state. D- d- there, reasonable there, there people can agree to disagree be- on. Yeah, totally. There are there should be areas that people, reasonable people, should be able to disagree on and should try and win an argument over. What we need to get away from is the idea that a, a woman's right to choose what happens to her body is a party political issue. You know, we need to get away from the idea. So, what does the left need to do to help improve that? Too well, I think what the left needs to do is is make the case, make an unequivocal and clear case for those fundamental principles and not um, equivocate on them. Uh, And I think there's been, certainly in Britain for a long time, there's too much a sort of equivocation on those principles. But also understand that part of a politician's job is to communicate and convince the people it's no good being very left-wing and knowing that you're right if you can't explain that to an ordinary person. That is a fundamental failure of the role of a political leader. You can be as clever as you want and you can be as right as you want, but if you don't know how to make that case to an ordinary voter who isn't, you know, because let's face it, people have a lot of stuff going on. You know, people's ordinary lives, you know, people like us are, you know, this is professionally something that we're obliged to take an interest in. It's also something we find personally interesting. And, you know, personally, I have the time to do that because of the nature of my lifestyle. I have the time to read the, you know, the New York Times. and I have the time to read the Guardian newspaper in the UK. But, you know, people working double shifts don't have the time to engage in the minutiae of politics. And so it's not just enough to be right. You have to explain to people why you're right and we're not going to do that if we keep just going why won't these people vote for us we're so clever that isn't going to work and you know i I think about something like 
uh, FDR's New Deal. And I think about it uh, and the extent to which it was this incredible transformative social program that built the welfare state and our socialized medicine. And it's the same thing with the New Deal. You know, so much of the building blocks of uh, modern America happened under the presidency of FDR, but were able to do things like call it the New Deal. You know, it, it, people still talk, you know, we talk about a Green New Deal now because we understand that that piece of rhetoric animated people and engaged them. And so we need to get back, we need to get to a position where the people with the good ideas can explain why their ideas are so good. Now, that's obviously going to be much more complicated because, uh, you know, there isn't a version of FDR's fireside chats that can kind of cut through the country in the same way. But the challenge for political leaders over the next 15, 20 years is to work out how to make their message cut through the fractious nature of the way that people currently communicate their, uh, consume their political news and their entertainment. Well, one of the fireside chat alternatives may very well be Hello America, Nish Kumar. Uh, <laughs> the show is, uh, yeah, you, uh, my career, my very brief career in politics taught me how to plug um, <laughs> and make sure you get the plug in at all times. So, uh, so I'll do you, that for you're, you. <laughs> you're a savvier operator than me, Clay. No doubt about it. So, do you ever so have your an alternative? Interest... Would you ever do it again? Um, you know, I ran for a reason. I had a I had a particular goal in mind. I wanted to make sure that the incumbent was was seen in a very gerrymandered district, and that people. Yeah. would not just continue to vote for her without having to hear her speak. I made mm -hmm. that possible. People saw her. She lost her next primary election. I feel like I played some role in that. Um, I, don't have a, I don't have a goal to go and run for uh, office for the sake of running for office, but I'm not opposed to doing it if there's a reason. Um, but, you know, wow. I, I do sometimes feel that there's ways to affect change, sometimes even more... Uh, more powerfully if you're not doing uh if you're not running for office and you're you're doing that with your show <laughs> which i'll I'm, I'm learning how to pivot back to <laughs> we'll do uh, if you don't have quibi yes, if you please. don't have quibi already you can get it you can get it on the app store on apple you can get it on the google play store for android phones um it's available online obviously um and every week you can have a fireside chat with nish kumar because i'll tell you as <laughs> someone who got to have a uh, got to have a corona a corona quarantine side chat with him myself it's worth it's worth having one so hello america comes out every week you can you can listen to nish um there and where else can we find you on instagram and twitter and all that stuff uh i'm uh, i'm uh, mr nish kumar um on uh, in twitter and uh, an instagram and i'm nish kumar comedian on facebook and your Hello America on Quibi. Hello America on Quibi. Thank you so much. This has been fun. This has been uh, education, so much, educational oh, for me. And I think for a lot of people who are listening and warnings from, uh, from the UK that hopefully people will take heed of uh, in, the, in this election year in the US too. So <laughs> thank you so much. So subscribe, rate, and review, and then send your questions to us for next week's show. You can do that via Instagram or Twitter at Politicon, or you can email us at podcast at politicon.com. We'll be back next week with another guest to try to figure out how the heck are we going to get along. What's up? I am Machine Gun Kelly. And look, I know Halloween is going to suck this year because there's no trick-or-treating and all that, but I've got a treat. There's a musical podcast that I made with my friends 24K Golden, Ian Dior, and Dana Dentata, and Satan. 
Well, Satan's not my friend, but Tommy Lee is, and Tommy Lee is playing Satan. But don't just take it from me. Tell him, Satan. Thanks, dude. It feels great to be playing Satan on this podcast. Listen to Halloween in Hell on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or whatever you get your podcasts on. 13 Days of Halloween. A remote hotel, the most unusual guests, a tour guide that can't be trusted. And the newest arrival is you. Why are you here again? They sound like someone you trust. I know you care me. Starring Keegan-Michael Key as the caretaker. Please make yourself at home. After all, this is it. One story each night, starting October 19th and ending on Halloween. From iHeartRadio and Blumhouse Television, listen to Aaron Mankey's 13 Days of Halloween on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.